right, we appreciate you guys for coming here in the room and those of you that are joining us on YouTube and Facebook and uh, you'll join us later perhaps as well. Um, we're going to be right back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we missed last week due to the Thanksgiving holiday, but um, I'm going to go ahead and read the, the verses that we covered last time that we were uh, here so that we can kind of be in the flow of things. Remember that the Apostle Paul has been talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's been his latest topic. And uh, he's concerned about that because he doesn't want people to fall back into their old practices of idolatry, but he also doesn't want them to give offense to their neighbors, uh, their non-Christian neighbors, or uh, cause confusion to their non-Christian neighbors by making them believe that you know they're you know, they're not concerned about idolatry at all, or that they're essentially polytheists. If you think about it, um, the Greco-Roman gods, right? You're familiar with, you know, Greek mythology, right? That's, we all studied that in, in school. Well, I don't even know if they, um, you're the youngest one in the room. Did you study Greek mythology in school? Huh? I'm 35. Oh, so he's, he's 33. I don't, I don't Y'all are two years apart. Okay. Yeah, they basically gutted the curriculum that they used to used to have in schools. But uh, we used to have a unit, I think, in junior high and maybe in um, English in high school, where we looked at you know uh, you know Greek and Roman mythology. But it's you know they're polytheists, meaning they worship many gods. So when you're a polytheist and a new god comes along, they don't have a problem with that. It's like, oh, okay, join the club. Here's a new God. And this is why Christians got into trouble because they were like, no, our God is the only God. But they got in trouble with their, you know, their uh, Jewish friends as well because they were, the Jewish friends were saying, well, then if you're, you know, if you're worshiping the one true God, well, he, you know, he's one God and not three gods. And the Christians were saying, well, no, it's God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, and it's this uh, mystery and this paradox, but it's one God, three persons, and so forth. So Christianity was innovative to a certain degree initially because it was, it was bringing something out that was actually in the Old Testament, as we saw when I covered the scripture, um, the prophetic scripture about Jesus from Isaiah, where it says, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, there it is right there, right? We're, you know, we're talking about Messiah and we're saying he will be called Everlasting Father. What? Messiah? Everlasting Father? You see, so it was already there. It's just, it's a mystery and it's difficult to understand. All the way back. So if you, we can bring this into a contemporary situation. If you were to talk to someone who comes from India and uh, they are, uh, a follower of their native religion, Hinduism. There are 330 million gods in the Hindu pantheon, and it is common for a particular uh, continental Indian to have their own god that they worship. I can remember in college uh, there was a uh, there was a Hindu, and he had a poster in his room of his god, right, and that was basically his idol. And so idolatry still exists. You know, we look at idolatry in a consumer culture as stuff, right? If 
people worship their technology, they worship their cars, they worship their guns, they worship, you know, whatever. But this is literal idolatry. So again, um, if you're a polytheist and somebody comes along and says, hey, here's Jesus and he's the son of God, then it's like, oh, okay, which God? You know, he's, sure, that, that's fine. But there has to be a clarification. There is one God, and this is the only begotten son of the one and only God. So um, when these folks, the Corinthians, were buying meat from the market, if that meat was tagged as having been offered in a pagan temple, they had to be careful about whether they ate it or not. Because if they ate it in the presence of one of these um, neighbors of theirs who were still worshiping idols, then the neighbor might believe that they were just saying, it's okay, this is part of my communion with your God. And a Christian would not want that. And so the Apostle Paul said, under that, in that situation, you refuse to eat the meat altogether. But if it's just meat and it's been, you know, you sit down at a neighbor's house and you eat the meat and they don't say anything about, you know, what it's associated with or whatever, then it's, it's nothing. It's just meat. It's the association here, right? And the association here. That's how we give offense to people, right? It's what they associate with good and what they associate with evil. So there's application here. So with that in mind, um, the apostle goes into uh, teaching that comes from the Old Testament. Now, by way of introduction again, on Sunday, I had a lot of stuff that I threw at you on Sunday. I mean, we talked about... Uh, the scripture that I just referred to, we talked about lighting the first candle of, of uh, the Advent wreath, which, you know, typically we focus on hope, and we in our church talk about the, testament, the testimony of the prophets, and so I just focused on the scriptures from Isaiah, and forgive me for not relighting that candle over there. I, it's just, if I light it on Wednesday and Sunday, it's going to burn all the way down to where it's going to be a lot about that big. And I'm too lazy to buy another set of candles and replace it. So I just thought, I'll just light it on Sunday and see how that works, right? Anyway, um, but uh, I spent an extended period of time talking about Hanukkah, which, as I stated Sunday, is uh, a Jewish festival or observance um, that is not found in the Old Testament. It comes from that intertestamental period. But I made reference to the scripture that we're gonna look at tonight. Um, and it is verse six, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. What are these things? Well, I'm gonna read that and we're gonna talk about it. But on the whole, these things are what we would just call the Old Testament, right? And the Old Testament is holy history. So there's two approaches to the Bible, both of which are wrong. There's one approach that says, well, that's just the Old Testament. That was back then. That was the Old Testament. We, we don't get into that. We don't read that. Right? That's wrong. And the other approach is just to lay the Old Testament and the New Testament down side by side and say it's all the same thing. No, there's, there's a plan here. There's a progression here. Right? There's a progression until you come to Jesus and then it all finds fulfillment in Christ. It all culminates in Jesus. So revelation, I don't mean the book of revelation, but I mean revealing God's word and his will, that's progressive. So even the prophets who received the word from the Lord, like Isaiah, 
they didn't understand probably at all the Trinity or um, the idea that Jesus was going to die on the cross or any of those things. They just wrote these things as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so with all that in mind and that introduction, um, I wanted you to understand Sunday that Hanukkah, although it's not found in our Christian Bible, uh, it is found in the Apocrypha. Therefore, if you're in the Episcopal Church or in the Catholic Church, then uh, that's what I read from Sunday morning. I read from a book out of the Apocrypha. And as I said, that is valuable for history. It's not valuable for doctrine. It's not, it's not inspired like the 66 books of the Christian canon, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable. It is valuable, and that's why I read a whole huge section from 1 Maccabees chapter 4 on Sunday morning so that you would understand how they came to the temple and it had been used for idolatry and it had been abandoned. And I hope I didn't spend an extended period of time you know, laying this analogy down, because I guess I kind of hope that people will see it for themselves. I did say clearly or remind you very clearly that you are the temple, right? You are the temple today, that we together are the temple. The temple's not a building. The temple's not a church building. The temple is us together. And that's firmly established in Scripture in, in the New Testament. You know, did you think on Sunday about what some churches must look like, especially in the wake of the pandemic? They must look a whole lot like the temple did, just abandoned. And people, their individual faith, there's so many people that are just walking away, they're just abandoning their faith. They've turned from worshiping the one true God to worshiping stuff. And you know, Christmas, what's Christmas supposed to be about? Jesus, right? But Christmas is about stuff. Quite honestly, it's about stuff. It's about buying stuff and giving and receiving stuff. It's, it can be very idolatrous. There's lots of beautiful Christian symbols, right? I've got this brand new uh, one over here that everybody seems to really like. Aquina brought this up. And uh, it's, that's really, really cool. And, uh, you know, hopefully you've looked at, uh, at our, our figurines over here for our major scene and then the little one that's in the window. Um, but that's not intended to promote idolatry, right? You know, a Christmas tree is, is beautiful, but it's not an idol. A cross is a beautiful reminder of what Jesus did for us, right? But I want you, Jesus is not on the cross anymore. You don't worship a cross. You don't worship a manger scene. Cool. It's really cool. You know, I love the, you know, the, the different baby Jesuses. Jesus's, baby Jesus, right? <laughs> and you know, we when we when we brought our manger scene out, well, we have a manger back there that we built for a play that we used to do periodically, and we haven't done it since 2010. And uh, since I bought these figurines uh, with Christie's help from Mardell um, last year. Um, I just decided to put them out there and not the big old burly manger scene. But there is a doll that one of our members was bringing up every year, and it probably looks more like a Middle Eastern child. Like it, it has an olive colored skin and whatever. And most of these are, you know, white kids. So, um, 
you know, and most of the pictures that we have, here's a picture of Jesus here, there's a picture of Jesus back there, there's a picture of Jesus here. He's very Anglo, Anglo right? Um, but we're not worshiping those. Those are reminding us that we do have a Lord, that he was born in a manger, that he did die on a cross. And I don't know, whatever you want to remind yourself of with a Christmas tree, that's up to you. Um, but nonetheless, we don't want to be idolaters, right? We don't want to be worshipers of stuff. We don't want to be worshipers of religion. You know, you can even worship your Bible. Do you realize that? I've got some really, really amazing Bibles. I'm keeping them all down here because I use them on Sunday a lot. And I, I just, I have these different preaching Bibles that I, I just, I really, really, I like them. But I don't worship them. I don't pray to them. It makes me appreciate God's word though. You know what I'm saying? So... It's like I was saying Sunday at the end of the service when I was talking about a member of our church that used to pray for the offering and, and talk about the offering. And, and he would say, and this is back before we all gave online. Like I think the majority of us know, you, you know, you do text to give or you use PayPal or however you, do, you give to our church. Hopefully you're giving. Uh, we're surviving, so I'm assuming you are. Um, but this was back when a lot of people gave cash. And, you know, he would say, I want to give these, you know, my best. So I want crisp money. I want to give new money. I want, you know, my 20 or my, you know, whatever you're going to give, I want it to be, you know, and, and he was just, that just was his way, right? That was just his way. Um, but when I look at a, a nice Bible, it's like that. Now, when your Bible is well used, it speaks well of your relationship with the Lord. Does that make sense? So I have a Bible upstairs that I got. It was the first study Bible that I ever got. And uh, it was the uh, New American Standard Open Bible is what it's called. And I don't ever bring it down or bring it anywhere because it will fall apart. Because the, it was it's a well-made Bible, but I highlighted it and just used it so much that it's so I'm just, you know, very careful with it. So these others, I mean, I don't highlight them or do anything with them. I just bring them up here to read and so forth. But um, that can be an idol as well. All right, extended introduction. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is talking about the, the Exodus. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, I don't want to go back through those uh, references because I spent an entire uh, lesson doing that. If you look at the immediately previous session that we did in here, um, uh, then you will see uh, see that. I think, what did I title it? Um, I. Uh, overcome, be over, see, overcome or be overthrown, I think is what I titled that after this, this final verse. But this is focused on that period of the Exodus, the pillar of cloud that followed them. Um, they went through the Red Sea, the idea of being baptized into Moses, right, in the cloud and in the sea. This is this identification with Moses as their leader, their spiritual leader, the lawgiver. Um, they drank the same spiritual drink, right? So there was this rock, they had no water, and Moses, uh, the first time he was, he struck the rock and the water came out. The second time, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, 
And he said, shall we bring water from this rock, you rebels? And he struck it and nothing happened. He struck it again. And then God said, okay. But then God cuffed Moses and said, now you're not going to go in the promised land. You're going to see it from a distance, but you're not going to honor me. Right? So they all went through that together. Right? They dealt with that together. And it would, would remind the, uh, the Corinthians and it should remind us of communion. Right? Oh, we partake of communion. We need to do it more in here. Um, and uh, the idea is that we're all eating and we're all drinking and being reminded of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Right Now, verse 6. I read this a moment ago, but this is the beginning of what we're going to look at today. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So I'm going to pause there. Um, have you ever read all the way through the Old Testament? Just all the way? Okay, let's be honest. There's parts of the Old Testament that are downright disturbing. There just really are. You get to Joshua and Judges, and if you're not a little bit disturbed, then there's something wrong with you. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And so one of the things that I have said um, and made a point of when we've done a, a kind of an apologetic for the Bible is that the not all that the Bible reports is what God supports. The Bible reports everything that happened what they thought, what they felt, what they saw, what they believed. But that's, if you need to be careful in your interpretation and understanding of that because it's not saying that God is supporting all of that. So, for instance, a psalm that I wish would just be removed from the Bible, honestly. But I'm glad it's not because God's smarter than me, right? This Psalm 137, and you're all looking at me like, are you a heretic? Do we need to leave this church? You always tell us to read the Bible. At the end of Psalm 137, the psalmist says that he wishes that their babies would have their heads dashed against the rocks. What? What the what? Seriously, man. That's, if that doesn't bother you, then there's something wrong. Okay. But what this shows is, does God support that? No. But does he listen to all of our words? Does he, all of your, your screaming, whining, moaning, groaning, complaining, all of your feelings? Yes. But that doesn't mean he's going to, aren't you glad he doesn't act on everything you say? We'd be done in, wouldn't we? So see, I just made an application with the psalm that I hate. All right. Um, nonetheless, these things all happen to them and with them as examples for us, why? So that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, he's focused on the Exodus. That's the focus. But I'm applying it to the entire uh, holy history. So let me just say this. We're going to get into these stories that he's talking about here, but let me just say this to you. When you read the Bible, you need to ask God, what are you saying to me, Lord? Help me to understand what this means, but what are you saying to me? And listen, you need to look for yourself in these verses. This is why people get bored. This is why people don't read the Bible, because they don't see it as God speaking to them. No, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
If the Bible is just dead words on a page, just go ahead and close it and go spend a little time in prayer. You don't have to spend a lot, just a little time in prayer. Then open it back up and say, okay, Lord, speak to me. Right? That's what you need to do. Because if the Bible is boring, that's your fault. Because God will speak to you. Okay? So verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Verse, uh, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Amen. That's why I taught you about Hanukkah on Sunday. That's why I focused on the prophets and how that set up the hope of Israel for the Messiah. We need to look at that same scripture and it needs to create within us. We need to allow it, right? The scripture will do it. The, you know, the word of God comes down from the Lord and it, it is not going to return to him empty, but it's going to accomplish what he sends it to accomplish. You just need to pay attention. Amen? See, I will tell you, a lot of people don't pay attention today. Amen? Amen. What happens when a traffic light turns from red to green today? If you don't move in two seconds, people honk at you all day. People don't move. They just sit there. No, I don't. I, I will. I will wait. Okay. I will wait. But I'm telling you, if everybody in that line is polite, we will just sit there. The light turns and we will just sit there. Why? Because they're not paying attention. That's exactly right. She held up her phone. That's it. We're all distracted. We have these, I mean, I've got like a little, I've got a little touch screen in my truck. It's like about that big. But I mean, you know, if you're driving a Tesla, the touch screen is like this and everything is run off of it, you know? And it's like, you're looking down here doing all of this. And I'm just thinking, can you just, I, I, can you look up, pay attention? Can you drive? Now, I'm not bobbing and weaving in and out of traffic, cutting people off and saying you're going too slow and whatever. But what I do is I just do a little courtesy. On. I just do a little boop, boop, right? Not a, but it's a little boop, boop. It's to get them to look up from their phone, right? I'm saying that because we don't pay attention. All right, now, this is great. I talk about rededication on Sunday. I want this to be a season of rededication. I think, maybe I'll preach this on Sunday, not this Sunday, I don't know when, we'll see. But a big part of that is to learn to pay attention. Now, I, I look at people, okay? If you're a good communicator, it's not a one-way thing. Even though you're not talking to me, right? I mean, you know, we're not in a Pentecostal church where everybody's like hollering back and so forth. Um, but I try to get you, right? I try to get you to, you know, to say something back or repeat that or whatever. I'm not, I'm not trying to play you like your little kids or something. I'm just trying to get you to, you know, 
pay attention and participate. Um, YouTube gives me really, really good feedback on how many people watched that stream, how many people were watching it simultaneously, when in the stream people were watching it, and how long they watch it. So I love it. People say, well, you know, I stayed home and I watched it at home. Okay. You know what the average amount of time people watched the stream last Sunday at home? 60 seconds. No, 24 minutes. How long is the service? It's an hour. Yeah, it's an hour and 15 minutes and they watched it for 24 minutes. You know what that tells me? That tells me they watched the music. Uh, listen, I, I get it. You know, when you're at home, it's hard to pay attention, right? It's hard to continue. And then maybe, you know, maybe some of those people after that, that statistic, you know, I read it, they, maybe they came back the next day and did. I'm not trying to judge people, but I am trying to say, I really, really don't think we pay attention. I do these little short videos periodically, okay? And they're usually two or three minutes People don't even watch those all the way through. They don't. It tells me they don't. It's a three-minute video, and they watch one minute of it. People don't pay attention. Now, I don't want to be this grumpy. Nobody's going to, I just don't think people are going to keep coming to church if I keep loading up your bags with guilt or something, right? But I think we need to challenge ourselves, right? I mean, when I've got little kids at my karate class, I recognize their age is going to be a big, big factor in their attention span, right? So we were talking about Shiloh, right? And he's, he's every bit four. If you talk to him, you would think he's a little bit older because he's so verbal, but he's really four, trust me, okay? And, you know, he'll be doing something, he'll be doing a little exercise, and then he's just off you know, on another part of the room and yeah. So, but what I try to do is engage those kids by talking to them and drawing them back in, drawing them back in. But I don't know that I should really have to do that with adults, right? Maybe so, I don't know. But I've noticed, I'm, I mean, I went all the way through college and seminary. So you have to sit still and let them instill this information. And I did what I was supposed to do and took my notes and got good grades, mainly. And, but now, okay, I was at a service not too long ago and it was going a little slow. And I thought, wow, I used to be able to really pay attention and I'm having to force myself right now. But see, that's the thing. You discipline yourself. Sue, I remember you telling me uh, about your experience with now Pastor Craig when he was little. And I remember you telling me that you made him practice sitting still at home before you took him to church. And when he could sit still for, I think you said an hour, then you took him to church. Is that accurate? Did I remember that correctly? Because you have to teach yourself and you have to teach your kids to sit still, right? Every little tickle and every little, you know, uh, no, I gotta, oh, I gotta check my phone. 
Uh, I need to go get a drink. Uh, I need to go to the bathroom. Do you really need to? Or see, that's our, it's, we just don't have this attention span anymore. But even if you are naturally an ADHD person, you can discipline yourself and you can come up with strategies that will work. I've told people that have ADHD, you need to learn to do two things at once. Learn to decorate your bulletin, right? Or, or just make notes in your own notes and whatever and, you know, move, okay? I used to tell kids, uh, young people in particular, as in, when I say young people, I mean uh, as in teenagers, because that's what I worked with, that if they had a hard time sitting still and studying, that they needed to find a way to get up and walk and read and talk. You see, it's burning off all of that need to move, to move, to move. Uh, we had a young man that was, he was going to DBU uh, years ago, and he had just a really, really severe case of ADHD. He'd been on medication since he was like really, really young. And I told him, I said, go out there and walk around. And he did. He, DBU is a big campus, right? And so he just, he would go out there and he would walk around, get your notes to where you can read them and say it out loud. If you have a hard time reading and paying attention, read out loud. You'll, it'll be slower, but having to speak those words out loud it's another process that you're engaging in that's getting you, okay, 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 to do it. Or, as I've said before, listen. I send you these links, those of you that are in my uh, daily Bible, I send you these links, and now I'm just sending you a verse, and then there's the link, and if you click the link, it'll take you to the verse in the Bible app, but if you click read chapter, you can read the chapter like we used to read the chapter, and I hope you still do, and of course, uh, the versions that I'm sending you have an audio version, so you can click the audio. But you can just listen. But if you want to really get a lot out of it, listen and read along. You see what I'm saying? Find ways to make yourself pay attention and engage um, because this is causing us to drift away from our faith, really. Um, we're, we're taking a lot of things for granted. You know, it's just like, well, I'm saved by grace and it's all good. And, but we're not growing, right? We're, we're not going anywhere. It's, I've got kids in my karate class that could be far more advanced than they are, but we only meet once a week for 45 minutes. And I want to keep them interested. So we don't do the same, 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 same. They may think we do a lot of the same, but I do a lot of different things in there. So we've got to circle back around and review and circle back around and review. The ones that practice, I can tell they practice. But I can also tell you that most of them haven't been practicing recently. They have to memorize scripture in order to promote. And they haven't been memorizing their scripture. So they just stay where they are. You see, I think a lot of us just stay where we are because we don't challenge ourselves to grow. We don't discipline ourselves. We don't make ourselves do anything that's uncomfortable. We rely on other people to do that, right? Okay, gotta have a, you know, I gotta have a job and I gotta be at my job or, you know, I'm at school and I gotta be at school. And so these other people, you know, if I lose my job, then this is gonna be bad. So it's, it's this outside influence that's forcing me to be disciplined. But self-discipline is different. It's making yourself get up, making yourself open the scripture, right? 
carving out that time and creating that place that you spend with the Lord. That's what self-discipline is about, okay? So let's look at uh, these, uh, these verses. Um, when it says, uh, he says, these things took place as examples for us. The Greek word used here is tupas or tupikos. And we get our English word type from that, type. A.T. Robertson talks about this Greek word and he said it originally it meant to strike and that was the mark of a blow as the print of nails. And then it was a figure formed by a blow like images of gods, right? And then it was an example to be imitated and he's giving scriptural uh, examples of this word being used in those senses. Or to be avoided as here. This is These are examples to be avoided. And finally, a type in a doctrinal sense. So what happened to Israel has been called the holy history. You've heard me call that, call it that before. Um, that's a, actually, it's kind of a theological approach to the Old Testament. There's actually a German word for that. It's the, the word Heilsgeschichte. Say that. Say, say Heilsgeschichte. Say Heilsgeschichte. Gesundheit. All right. Come on, if you'd all said it, if you'd all paid attention, it would have been a funny joke. Okay. All right. So this is, rev this is the revelation of how God works among his chosen people. It's a pattern. Um, yeah, it's a type. It's a pattern. Um, the word would be used of an impression made by a stamp or of a figure or image. So in a sense, Sue, I remember back when you were first teaching, there was a lot of discussion and we had a few discussions uh, in your home about paradigms. Remember that? Your paradigm, right? Paradigm is coming from the same family of words and ideas, right? A type, an example, a paradigm, okay? Um, so holy history is the image of what God's people are and are not supposed to be. This is why we have the written Old Testament. Let me say that again. Holy history is the example of what God's people, who are God's people? We are holy history is the example of what God's people are and are not supposed to be. Again, when you read the Old Testament, look for yourself. You say, man, those crazy Israelites, ah, look for yourself, okay? <laughs> and look for God to speak to you. So, um, it's, uh, he, he sees these things in, in a sense as analogies. This is the way he's using the wilderness wandering of the children of Israel earlier in the chapter. He's, he's using it as an analogy. To apply the text in this way, we've got to understand what it meant. So you can't just lift it off the page and apply it. You have to have an understanding of how it fits historically. You've got to have context. That's why you're here. You've got this guy that spent 30 years of his life, right? I, I didn't get done with my education until I was 30. And I did that so that I would be prepared so I could do this with you. And I prepared before I came I wrote, you know, I did notes for this, uh, uh, for this teaching back in uh, 2014, I think is the first time I did this, 15, somewhere around there, uh, or maybe even earlier than that. 
Actually, it might have been earlier than that. And so then I go back through and I look at the notes and I review and revise and remind myself. Okay? Because how many times have you learned something and then you can't remember it? But when you review it, oh yeah, oh yeah. It's not the same as learning it the first time, right? It's down there, you just had to go chase it. So in fact, this is, this is how I, I'll give you uh, an insight into my thought process when I'm teaching like this. I was trying, as I was saying, example, analogy, pattern, I was trying to remember the word paradigm. I was chasing that around in the back of my brain and I was about to get frustrated at myself because I hadn't used that word in so long, right? Yes, you don't. All right. So, um, and then this word is, is uh, this tupos means example, and that's how it's translated here. And this is the way the Apostle Paul is helping us to understand it. Here are the examples. He says, first, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. All right, bonus points if you know where the Apostle Paul is referring to in Holy History. Listen to the phrase, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Do you know where that's coming from? Turn to Exodus 32. It's in, yep, it's in the wilderness. It's at the beginning before they actually started wandering, it's at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses had gone up the mountain to receive the law, and he was up there for 40 days. And here's another thing that we are. We don't pay attention, and we're very impatient, right? They were impatient. They were inveterate idolaters. And so they said, hey, let's make a god and go back to Egypt. Here it is. I, I have a whole... Um, uh, discussion of this, but rather than rather than just give my summary, I'm just going to read the chapter. This is from the 1984 uh, New International Version. It'll flow a little better. When the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Remember, Aaron is Moses' brother, the priest, and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. These would have been gold earrings that they got as they left Egypt, right? It says they plundered the Egyptians because the Egyptians just gave them stuff and said, get out of here, okay? So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Interestingly, they're saying, these are your gods. Aaron is still trying to direct them to Yahweh, but apparently he's getting them to see this calf as Yahweh. Wow. That was Aaron. That was the first priest. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Okay, so there it is right there. This is, 
This is, uh, this is where that, that phrase came from. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, right? So there it is. That's verse 6 of Exodus 32. Verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So God said, I'll start over with you, Moses. I can still keep my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can still have this line that's going to result in the Messiah. I don't need any of these people. Oh, bear that in mind. God loves you, but he don't need you. He doesn't need any of us. He will get his will done one way or the other. So this, if it is to be, it is up to me, is nonsense. God wants you to witness. He wants you to share the gospel, right? But if somebody has even the slightest flicker in their heart of interest in the Lord, he's going to find a way to lead them to himself. It's not dependent on you. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You're blessed when you do the will of the Lord, all right? But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Oh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, so Joshua wasn't with the group. He was separated. He was on the mountain waiting for Moses to come down. So Moses comes down off the mountain. Here's Joshua who's been waiting for him the whole time. And then they go further down. And now we have this scene. Then Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting. He said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. You see, the people had broken the covenant. Those tablets were the covenant. This is just symbolic of what the people had done. They had broken the covenant with God. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. It's weird, right? But you know what? I bet they got a little sick when they drank that water. And God was just sick of their idolatry. 
Here's your beautiful calf. Your beautiful calf makes God sick. Now it's going to make you sick because that's what it really is. Our idols are sickening. We need to get rid of them. Verse 21, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. And by the way, Aaron is the older brother. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. What? <laughs> he was truthful all the way until that point and he said, and then out of the fire, out came this calf. I think Moses, you, I mean, uh, Aaron, you, you made it, buddy. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, that is Yahweh, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. So this would be all from his tribe. And he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. If this doesn't disturb you, you follow what I'm saying? But what is the penalty for idolatry? Moses just begged God to spare them, and now he's sending the Levites in to take their lives, right? Well, in the end, this is the due penalty for turning away from the Lord and worshiping idols. Aren't you glad we're in an age of grace? Amen? So that gives you the... Uh, that story and what was going on. He says, don't be like them. Don't be idolaters like them. Um, I want to talk about briefly this golden calf, okay? The Israelites seem fascinated with worshiping the golden calf. We see it first in this incident that I just read at the base of Mount Sinai. And then we see it again when the northern ten tribes broke away from the ruling tribe of Judah to form their own government under uh, Jeroboam. In a shrewd political move, that apostate king commanded uh, two golden calves to be made. One would be placed in the city of Bethel and then another in the northern city of Dan. And afterwards, when the people went on pilgrimage to worship, they would not go to Jerusalem to the temple but they would go to Bethel or Dan, but they wouldn't be worshiping Yahweh, would they? Uh -uh. They'd be worshiping a calf idol. Once again, trying to associate this calf with Yahweh. Why? What is wrong with these people? Why a golden calf? I think you'll find this interesting. I hope you will. I think this is cool. Why a golden calf? Why did this icon, why does this icon recur in Israel? The calf, of course, is a young bull, right? This isn't. It's a, it's a young male cow, or it could be a, an ox. The bull was used to represent the chief deity of the Canaanites. Remember, the name of the land that the Israelites came into was called what? Canaan. And in this land of Canaan lived all of these pagan peoples, right? The chief god of the Canaanite people was a god whose name was El, E-L. That's also the Hebrew word for God. Elohim 
is the Hebrew plural of that word. And this form of the word is used by the people of Israel to refer to Yahweh. So whenever we're reading in the Old Testament and you come across the English word God, G-O-D, it is almost always this word Elohim. And the singular of it is El, right? So one of the ideas behind the Israelites using Elohim plural rather than El singular is to discriminate that from this pagan deity, right? Um, now, Elohim is almost always translated God in our, in our uh, Bibles. However, like our word God, at times it may refer to foreign or false gods. So there is God, capital G-O-D, and there are gods, little g-o-d-s, right? So El was the false god that was the chief of their pantheon. Um, again, they were polytheists, so they worshipped many gods. This was just the one that was the, the head god. It would be kind of like their version of Zeus, right? Zeus was sort of the, you know, the chief uh, Greek and Roman god, okay? Additionally, um, so remember, El was, the idol for El was a, a bull, right? Now remember, a calf is a what? It's a juvenile bull, okay? The chief deity in Canaan is a bull, El. Bear that in mind. They came from the land of what? Egypt, okay? There was an Egyptian, call, a, an Egyptian god called Apis, which was in the form of a bull. This god was believed to impart fertility. The bull and the ox represented both fertility and strength in the ancient world. Now I'm going to bring it all down. Why were they fascinated with the calf? It's easy to see how a young bull could be thought of as representative of as a as a representative of Yahweh, a new deity in the land of Canaan. The god of a young nation growing fertile and strong. So you see why they may have wanted to take this calf and let it represent their God and their nation, right? And God said, no, you're not going to make anything that represents me. That's firmly in, the, in the, the Ten Commandments, right? First commandment is you'll have no other God before me. What's the second commandment? You don't make any graven image. You don't make any idol, period. Now, the second commandment, the first commandment prohibits idolatry, no other gods. The second commandment prohibits creating statues, icons that are prayed to, that are representative of. So once again, let's go around the room. If we were hardcore about this, we would have no manger scene, no crash, no cross. No paintings of Jesus, because we don't want to be idolaters. Now, if I see you bowing down to that manger scene, I'm going to take it down. Okay. If I if I see you up there praying to you know the painting or the cross, then I'm going to take them down. Right? It's art. Art should inspire you to worship, but it inspires you to look up and out and away at the transcendent God. Not to look at the painting, not to look at the Bible or the cross, as in, as in the, the copy of scripture you have, 
right? We've got to learn to look away. So let's go back to Corinth and the application of this Israelite example. Is it possible that some in Corinth could have tried to make the case that the meat they ate, though sacrificed to an idol, was really sacrificed to God since there really aren't any other gods? This could help the conscience of a former idolater, but it wouldn't stop the practice of eating meat sacrificed to false gods from being a legitimization of those gods in the minds of people who had yet to confess Christ as Savior and Lord and the only begotten Son of the one true God. For us, there are many applications of the twofold example of uh, Israel and Corinth. I'll make one important application. We cannot make God in our own image. This applies conceptually first. All too often, we associate God the Father with our earthly fathers, and this can be a terrible misrepresentation. Our fathers, if they are good, are like God, but not the reverse. Throughout history, various groups have adopted and adapted Jesus, making him their image instead of conforming themselves to his. There's a Muslim Jesus. There's a Mormon Jesus. There's a white supremacist, KKK Jesus, and so on, right? Jesus didn't come to be made in my image or your image. We're made and formed in his image. In fact, that's God's whole goal, right? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But that's not a physical image. Cool painting, that's not Jesus. Awesome picture. By the way, that was painted by a nine-year-old. Did you know that? It's, it's an amazing story. Akiyanye or something like that is her name, okay? But that's not Jesus. Apparently she had some vision. I'm still telling you that's not Jesus, okay? Um, great painting back there by uh, Thomas Bashirs, I think is his name, which that, by the way, is a, a uh, signed, numbered lithograph. That's actually worth a lot of money. It's interesting that I've got it sitting down there so low on the wall. You've seen that everywhere. But that's, that's right after it came out. There's a limited number of those. That is a signed, numbered lithograph. And I had it in storage for so long that the, the beautiful uh, uh, frame and mat work is, yeah, I need to have it rematted is what I need to do. But in any event, yeah, this is not the cross that Jesus died on. But I'm not going to take them down, right? We're not idolaters. You can be inspired to look up and beyond and at that. I think that that's important, all right? Um, there's a couple of other examples that are here. Um, and I've got five minutes to cover them quickly. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. So this comes from, also uh, comes from their wilderness wandering. Uh, it's found in Numbers 25. And this is when the people began to, I mean, forgive the language, but it's biblical language. We're told the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. Interestingly, um, there's the story in scripture of Balak and Balaam, right? And the prophet could not curse Israel, but in the end, the prophet was the one that told Balak, who was the king, this is how you're going to trip them up. Use sex. Why not? Trips everybody up. And that's exactly what happened. So, 
they got these, you know, these fertility gods and they had these cult prostitutes. And so in so doing, this is why the Apostle Paul, in fact, in this very book says that when you join yourself to a prostitute, you're, you know, when you have intercourse with a prostitute, you're joining yourself to them in one flesh. You become one flesh. So this was their way of joining themselves to a false god. So the Israelites were just, man, in the wilderness, they were just a disaster from beginning to end. They never stopped worshiping these other gods. And so no matter how many miracles God did, they were still willing to turn away. Well, this was a horrible situation for, for them. As he says here, 23,000 fell in a single day. So God brought uh, a whole lot of uh, judgment down upon them, all right? There's a whole lot more to be said here, but I'm, I don't wanna keep on the same verses for two weeks. Um, the next verse, we, not, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's one passage. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So the first uh, about the serpents is found in, in Numbers 21 and describes a time when God sent serpents among the people to bite them in response to their impatience and blasphemy. They spoke against both God and Moses. They showed contempt for, toward God's gift of manna that is the food from heaven, saying, we loathe this worthless food. How many times has God supplied your needs, but you just got bored with it, got tired of it, started complaining about it? So God sent fiery snakes among the people. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> the chains that you forge end up binding you, right? That we forge those chains of, of complaints and it just gets heavier and heavier. You know, people make themselves miserable with their constant negativity. And this is why sometimes you, you need to go through and, and prune your social media, right? You might not, you think, well, but I don't want to unfriend that person. Unfollow them then, whatever you got to do. But, you know, when you've just got this constant complaining and hatred and division. It's like snakes biting you, man. Get rid of it. I, I've just posted a little thing and, and you responded to it. Sometimes you can't get rid of the people that are like close to you in your life, right? Yeah. But there are good people in the world and you can gravitate to them. So when you have the choice, choose to gravitate toward good people and you're here. So obviously you're making that choice right now, right? Um, so, that's the complaining, right? Then uh, Paul says they were uh, putting Christ to the test, even though they didn't yet know that God was speaking to them through his son. Well, in John 3, Jesus uses this story of the serpents because Moses was told to create a bronze serpent, a large bronze serpent, and lift it up. And the people who were bitten by the snakes, these poisonous snakes, could look to that bronze serpent and they would be healed. So it's the look of faith. And in uh, John chapter three, verse 14, Jesus says, referring to that, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So they're looking upon the very thing that is punishing them and they're healed because this is pointing ahead to Jesus who was punished for us on the cross. 
He took our sin upon him. And when we look to him with faith, then we are healed from our sickness and our sin and the death that we are due. So, um, yeah, let me go to the the next one. Um, He says, nor should they grumble or should we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, all right? Um, That is a word um, in Hebrew that sometimes is, sometimes it's translated uh, murmur, all right? Sometimes you'll hear, okay, so let's let's try an experiment and you'll get what this is. I'm I'm running over by it a little bit, but thank you for your patience. But this is fun. I've done this with youth before. I want everybody in the room to say the word murmur five times when I point at you. Ready? Are you listening? It's an onomatopoeia word, right? Right? It's one of those words. Okay. Um, this word was used a number of times because they, they, they grumbled against Moses and against God again and again and again and again. The last time that I will refer to, and I'll close with this, is when they were about to enter the promised land. They sent spies in. The spies came back and says there are giants in the land. And of course, they grumbled against Moses and God. And this was the last straw. They said, you brought us here to have our children killed. God said, okay, that's it for you. We're done. Turn back and go into the wilderness because everyone that's over the age of 20 is going to die in that wilderness. But your children who you said I brought here to kill, they're going to go in and take the land. And indeed, that's what happened. So certainly, these people were overthrown in the desert, as Paul states in verse 5. Even though Moses interceded for them on several occasions, they were destroyed by their own insolence and unbelief. Every adult over the age of 20 dropped dead during the 40 years of wandering in the desert, and the children went in and took the land. So um, the Corinthians would be able to cull from these examples the admonition that they needed and the change that they needed. So let me circle back around and invite you to stay in the Scripture on a daily basis and to ask God to speak to you and to see yourself in these texts and be corrected by it because that's going to keep us on the path, right? Don't be distracted. Don't be thrown off the path. Stay in the Word. Follow the Lord, and you will find that He will prosper you. Amen?